Well, good morning, and um, welcome to Christ Community on the Leewood campus. It's summer, right? Yay! Uh, I love summer, and uh, my name is Tom Nelson. I have the joy of uh, serving on our teaching team and primarily here at the Leewood campus, and just very grateful for the joy of your attendance. I hope you sense God's presence with us today. Now, I don't know what you were thinking when you heard Pastor Allen read that text of Scripture that we come to this morning. Uh, Some of you uh, maybe thought in your own skepticism (laughs) that, uh, you know, these guys have been going through Hebrews since the first week in January just to get to this part, just to tell us, hey, you guys, you know, you need to follow us and obey. Well, if you're newer to Christ's community, I just want to say a couple things on that. (laughs) Uh, I'm so glad at Christ Community that uh, we don't pick and choose. Um, We let the Bible set the agenda, not the preacher. That uh, we teach the whole counsel of God. We go from the beginning to the end, and uh, we try to respect the text as it was written with the purpose of the author and the original languages and work through with integrity the literary text without setting the agenda of what the pastor wants to talk about. So I hope uh, you're encouraged by that. And uh, I think over time, we've seen in our congregation that as we follow the scriptures, God gives us a balanced diet, doesn't he? A diet of truth and grace, just what we need. So I'm going to pray and ask God to speak to us. And I want to remind all of us at Christ's community, if you're newer, you know this, but um, we teach God's word not so that we can get something from you. We teach God's word so that we can trust God to give you something, that it's for you, not from you. So we want to follow his agenda this morning. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak to each one of us. Thank you for the beauty of praise and worship. I thank you for each one here. Father, as I seek to be faithful to your word this morning, with all the inadequacies I have. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hear a lot about leadership in our time. Uh, I have many books on it, in case you wondered, on my shelves. We have lots of blogs we go to and... um, Almost from every nook and cranny of our culture, it seems to me, the topic of leadership uh, is a common topic. We spend literally billions and billions of dollars to develop leaders. And uh, one of my favorite, favorite quotes of all times about leaders actually comes from a pastor. His name is Stuart Briscoe. And Stuart Briscoe said that leadership requires three things. I don't think anyone said, said it better than this. Leadership requires the head of a scholar, the heart of a child, and yes, the hide of a rhinoceros. I think he's right. Leadership is a daunting enterprise. And it's uh, like a national pastime of baseball or soccer or anything else that we talk a lot about it. We criticize it. We laugh about it. I don't think Saturday Night Live could have survived this long (laughs) unless it had taken on all the leaders of our culture and the iconic Saturday 
nightwives, skits, including the church lady, if you remember way back. But at SNL, everybody is a target. Every leader is a target for SNL. That's also true of Jimmy Fallon, if you're now a fan of his and the late night show. And uh, he gets a lot of material from our leaders' foils and their failings and their eccentricities, doesn't he? We laugh at our leaders. We laugh with our leaders. But in our laughter, we know a truth, that leadership matters. But what about followership? Does followership matter too? We don't hear as much about that. I don't see it on the blogs at this level or the New York Times bestseller list. Perhaps across the sands of time, through the echoes of history, the biblical text of the book of Hebrews speaks into our day. We seldom hear about followership, and yet the text we are looking at this morning addresses it. It tells us that followership matters, and it raises this very important question for all of us. What is the right stuff of followership? Now, if you have a Bible open, or if it's not open, if you turn with me to Hebrews 13 as we enter this text, let's set the context because Hebrews 13 in its literary structure is an epilogue. Now, I want you to think of an epilogue as the final lap in a race, whether it's a car or a person running or a bicycle. It's the last race of, uh, lap of the race that the writer is getting to before he finishes. And here in the final lap of Hebrews, which is 13, we find this compact wrap-up of what he has already said throughout the book about persevering faith. Last week, we looked at the first part of this epilogue in verses 1 through 6, and it's, it's under the banner of brotherly love, and we were encouraged to love well. Now, in sequence, in literary sequence, we come to verses 7 through 19. Now, under the broad banner of church leadership, paradoxically and interestingly, we are encouraged to follow well. So you have the picture of, don't forget, to love well and to follow well. And let me just say, if we are going to learn to lead well, we must learn to follow well. Kids and students, I want to encourage you this morning on that. All of us, older or younger, need to learn how to follow. We never stop learning how to follow. But when you are younger, learn to follow well. Follow your parents. Follow your youth leaders. Follow your teachers. Learn to follow because to lead, we must learn how to follow. These 13 verses of this text, the Hebrew writer says one thing. And he says, followers of Jesus follow well. And he gives us four essentials of the right stuff of followership. Teachability, discernment, generosity, and prayer. That's the flow of the text. Those four essentials are what we're going to unpack together if you're taking notes or thinking through your mental scaffolding of this talk. First, he tells us in verse 7 to stay teachable. And he does it in the strongest language. He says, remember your leaders... Those who spoke the word of God to you consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, in the original language, he strikes right away, in a contrasting way, a strong grammatical tone. This is not a suggestion. This is an urgent call to action. 
is assuming a posture of being a learner within your and our local church context, the church. And here in verse 7, church leaders are to teach us, notice the text, both by their words and their life. In this context, we might say, primarily what the Hebrew writer is speaking in our time are pastors and elders who give leadership to our local church. Now, if we're going to understand what the intent of the author is in its literary structure and grammar and syntax, then we need to grasp this word consider. It's very important to his flow. Original language, where we get consider from this word, is not just an intellectual idea. It is scanning something closely with our eyes. It is to observe carefully to see if something is consistent and right, if it has an integralness to it, if it is coherent, if it, we might be saying, if the real deal, is it the real deal inside and out? Now, this is the kind of thoughtful scrutiny not driven by a critical, unteachable spirit, but rather a critically engaged mind, which is essential for followership. This week I was on the road traveling, and uh, one of the things I do that I don't always love to do, but I often have to do, is to rent a car at the airport. Does it just freak you out? I mean, I don't know if you've rented a car. Many of us have. Like, it's one of my most stressful times of travel. Why? Right? I mean, you know, there's a line of people before you, a line of people, you've got to go to your uh, appointment or whatever you're doing, and they have you sign all this stuff. Just reams of stuff. Fine print. Is anybody freaking out by that? I mean, it's like I'm signing my life away. I don't have time to read it. People are behind me. They want to hurry. I'm like, like, good night. And when I sign all that stuff, I have no idea what I'm signing. Get my car or get my keys. I go to the car and I consider the car. Let me tell you I consider the car. I walk around the outside, I look at the bumper, I look at everything about that car. Dents, scratches, I look inside, see if it's clean. Why? Because if it is not right, I will pay for it. Now, you may not have rented a car recently, but I want to suggest you consider lots of things. You consider at the grocery store. If you buy an Apple or whatever, you look at that baby, right? You look around, it's okay, there's no blemishes, you consider it. That's the idea. Or if you buy a home, you really consider what you're signing, right? You look at the home. You have it inspected. Or if you buy a new set of golf clubs or a new pair of shoes or a financial instrument, especially for retirement, you really consider it. Now, this is important because through the great Western tradition, we have a Latin phrase. If you want to impress people, the Latin phrase is a part of the thoughtful conversation of the Western world from way back. And it's what? Caveat emptor. You all know what that is? Let the buyer beware. And this is what the Hebrew writer is saying. He's saying, let the follower beware. Look at your leader's words and their lives. Do they practice what they preach? Are they the same person on Monday as they are on Sunday? And if their lives are consistent, if there's an integralness to their life, then the Hebrew writer says, do what they do. 
In fact, the word is literally imitate. Wild. See, being teachable, we must learn not only from the leader's words, but their way of life. And God's word in several places calls us to follow leaders as they follow Jesus. A wonderful new insightful book written by Dean Fleming. It's called Recovering the Full Mission of God. I really like that title. And uh, he has some amazing insight. He says this, Jesus of Nazareth gives God's loving mission. Notice what he says, a face, a voice, and a pair of sandals. A face, a voice, and a pair of sandals. What is he saying? That Jesus models incarnational leadership, where there is a seamless fabric of being, telling, and doing. And the Apostle Paul unpacks this exactly in Philippians 4.9. And in Philippians 4 9, we read, What you learned and received and heard, notice, and seen in me, and the word is practice, that's do. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is saying, Learn from my life, my being, learn from my words, my telling, and learn from what I do who I am, what I say, and what I do. Staying teachable. I think you'd agree, because we've been around a while, it's one of the most challenging realities in our life in being a follower. Especially if we've been in church a while or we've been a Christian for quite a while. Have you ever, I know you've never done this, have you ever come to church and one of our pastors gets up here, starts opening the Bible, reads something, I know that. Come on, come on, Tom, teach me something I don't know. And we wouldn't say that, but we haven't sort of, right? I've been there, I've sat, listened to a teacher or something like, come on, give me some stuff. Or sometimes as we get older, we get lazy intellectually. We stop unlearning and relearning and learning. This is not a sign of maturity. This is a sign of blinding spiritual pride. And at Christ's community, we deeply value the life of the mind. But let's remember that sometimes hitchhiking on the backside of that is the ugliness of pride. No matter the degrees we have, the amount of studying the Bible we have done, the years we have been in church, every one of us here, look around, every one of us here can learn from everyone else. Pride of unteachability is perilous for all of us, both young and old. A healthy local church community is a teachable humble, intergenerational learning community. I'll never forget being at a conference for students. I love student conferences. I've always loved college, college students. And I'll never forget being at a college student conference. And uh, I was sitting on the front row because I had a speaking uh, deal. And next to me, just down the road, or down the row, was the leader, founder and leader of the organization. And in front of us was a young staff person of that organization giving a talk on this guy's book that he had written. You got the picture? And I'm like, you know, I'm looking down, like, what is he thinking? And I see him doing this, taking notes. Now that's the kind of leader I want to follow. Because to lead well, we must follow well. And we must stay teachable. Are you a teachable follower? Kids, students, are you learning from your youth leaders? 
parents, your teachers? Adults, are you learning from your pastors, your community group leaders? We must stay teachable. But notice where the text goes. We not only need to be teachable, but being teachable does not mean putting your brains on the shelf or being gullible. Quite the contrary. The second essential is we must be discerning. Look at verses 8 through 9. Notice how this text structures. Jesus is the focus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who, the word literally means, it's a very hard translation, means those who have a lifestyle of, of living wrongly, of back and forth, of being absorbed in them. So this is not just some little thing. This is a whole life of false teaching and living. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes that spiritual discernment comes by being tethered to Jesus Christ and to sound doctrine of who he is and what he has done for us. He emphasizes this at the core of the gospel, lest we miss it in verses 10 through 14. And that is Jesus' life and atoning death on the cross. And the glorious future that redemption by grace alone brings as we march to a new place in the new heavens and new earth, the heavenly city. So what he is saying here is that we must stay tethered to Jesus, our chief shepherd. He is the one who is eternally trustworthy, who never changes, and we must not be enticed by false teaching that would lead us astray. Now notice verse 9. Notice the word, led away. The strong warning here is a doctrinal drift. What we believe, friends, really matters. Being a true Christian is not only evidenced in right behavior, but also right belief. This is one of the repeating refrains of the book of Hebrews, starting with chapter 2, verse 1. You remember this text if you've been a part of our series? Let me reread verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So important is this that the Hebrew writer comes back in the final literary lap and pushes it right in our lap. We must pay very close attention to what our church leaders teach, what our parachurch leaders teach, or what a community Bible teacher teaches, or someone on the radio, or someone on TV. And notice the context. One of the greatest dangers, if we are not growing spiritually, is we become increasingly vulnerable to spiritual deception. It has often been said that the devil never sleeps. And let me just add that spiritual deception never takes a vacation in any of our lives, including me. It is a constant peril. It is not that Satan cares that you believe something or I believe something. It is that he greatly cares about you believing rightly. That's what he cares about. Now notice in the text, in the first century, these Jewish followers of Jesus who had embraced the gospel now are being led astray back to old ways of restrictions and diets, and it wasn't just Jesus in the gospel, it was other stuff added on, cluttered on. And they were telling them that 
Gospel faith in Jesus was not enough. So all of us here today must be discerning and not be duped by false teachers. We must follow well, but never follow blindly. We must be anchored to sound doctrine and not be tossed to and fro like a bobber on the waves of the latest great wave or fad or new whatever movement. This is nothing new. The church has always faced this, and it's perilous. That's why this summer, our teaching team is very excited and pray for us. We're going to do a series on believing rightly. We've entitled this series, Does It Really Matter? And I hope all of us, young and old, kids, students, moms, dads, all of us will make this summer a priority as we unpack sound doctrine and truth of the Christian faith. So let me just a bit start the conversation. Is that okay? Why do nice, well-meaning people get duped by well-meaning often Nice false teachers. Let me just suggest that there are many ways false teachers deceive. But let me suggest three of them. Through an appealing message and or an appealing personality or an appealing cause. Some false teachers are ear ticklers. They present an appealing message we want to hear rather than a message we need to hear. The clear and hard teachings of Holy Scripture are either ignored, distorted, or explained away. A kind of wide tent inclusivity is promoted where everyone's belief is okay, where the seriousness of sin is shrouded in cheap grace. And humble repentance becomes unnecessary. It is, doctrine is outdated and irrelevant for our time. Ear ticklers often grace ecclesial robes. They're nice people who accommodate their theology to the changing whims of culture. They may really care. But they don't care most for truth. They care most to tell us what we want to hear ear ticklers. Secondly, some false teachers are eye catchers. They swoon others by their appealing personality or perfect smile or their celebrity image. They tell us with their words and their carefully crafted image, they are special. And vicariously, we can be special too. They prey on feelings of inferiority and spiritual dissatisfaction a lack of material success, and you can just list it on and on. Eye-catchers are, well, let's just say they're often green room leaders. What a green, what's a green room? I, I never knew what this was until the last few years as I've been extruded into a national conversation and have found myself in many different places. The green room is where stage musicians and pastors or speakers go. It's the place of privilege and perks. It's a heady place where there's a celebrity aura attached to it. As I said, the last few years, I have seen firsthand 
what the green room does and the attraction of it in my heart and many other people's heart. So long ago, I was speaking at a conference, actually, it was in Dallas. That's all I'll tell you. And uh, Liz and I, or Liz was with me this weekend, and I, I was actually invited to the green room. And that's what they call it. I mean, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with it. I mean, green room, but... And one of the speakers I was to follow is a very well-known Christian author and speaker. I'd never met him before. But let me just say, when he entered the green room, it was like he was royalty. Eye-catchers love the stage. They're great on the stage. They can wow the crowd, and they can woo people away from truth, just like that. Because eye-catchers are likable people. We, we don't listen carefully to what they say or think critically what they say or what they leave out. We don't pay attention to how they live. Third, false teachers can also be heart grabbers. They pitch to us an urgent and an appealing cause that is overstated, overcorrected, and overemphasized. Often they paint a distorted picture of the status quo, of long-standing institutions, of the church that's not getting it right, or others who don't get it, or who are not progressive in their thinking, or part of the latest 500-year wave, or are not culturally aware. Cause can be a social issue. It can be a looming threat. The sky is falling in. I was at a conference not too long ago where I will not mention who it is. Spoke about the red moon and the alignment of the end times is coming now. Biblical prophecy, often it's overstating the case of a sociological dimension of the church that everyone's leaving the church. We had to change. False teachers are heart grabbers. They put fear, an excessive fear, in people's hearts. And it often moves them to prideful monastic separatism or cultic extremism. They often prey on idealism, particularly youthful idealism. And they lead many well-intentioned people to embrace false doctrine. Rather than retether the new generation to what the Bible clearly teaches in Jude as the faith delivered once for all. Wise spiritual leaders steward youthful idealism well and humbly. False teachers exploit youthful idealism. They may talk a lot about wanting Jesus followers, but what they really desire are more personal followers for their monastic order or their system or their organization. Blaise Pascal's words speak across time to our time. He said, in the 17th century, you get this, men never do evil so willingly than in the name of God. Let me just say there is so much evil. But few things are more evil than leading others astray with false doctrine. So what do we look for for our spiritual leaders? Psalm 78, 72 helps us here. And it's the frame of the whole Bible in Old and New Testament. The shepherding heart that has what? David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. Now there is much skill needed in leadership. But the biblical foundation of skill that is absolutely essential from Scripture, whether it's a church leader, a parachurch leader, a Bible study leader, is that they rightly divide the word of truth. That they study the text, they teach it, they live it. The clear truths of Scripture without compromise or distortion. And I have to say, having been a pastor for 25 years, one of the things that bothers me the most, 
breaks my heart the most is none of us, I trust, would entrust our physical well-being to a physician who has not been rigorously trained, prepared, and yet somehow we follow spiritual leaders who have not been rigorously trained, who are inexperienced, who are spiritually immature and intellectually incompetent. Are we a discerning follower? That's what this text asks us. Do we stay teachable and are we discerning? Third, notice, do we live generously? Notice verses 15 through 17. One of the things as you study the great commentaries of Hebrews is people go, how does 15 through 17 fit here? It's a tough interpretive question, but I think there's a close link. At first glance, verses 15 through 17 seem like a disconnected last-minute grocery list. Praising God, doing good to others, obeying your leaders. It's like, hmm. But what weaves this text together, I believe, is a common thread of generous grace that flows from everything he has said in Hebrews, from a gospel-centered, gospel-transformed life who is yoked to Jesus and who is embedded in spiritual community and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, you'll notice he says, follow your leaders with a lip style of joyful praise. Not for them, but for God and the gift they are, just like all of us are gifts. Verse 16, we are encouraged to live a lifestyle of joyful generosity. And yes, that's with our money, material possessions, which notice the text says, it's kind of an extra push, which pleases God, by the way. (laughs) When we follow well, we generously support our local church leaders. And this text is written to a local church. Several of them, it circulates. So if we understand the context then our tithes and offerings are to be given to our local church, first and foremost, as an act of obedience and worship. To not do so is disobedience from Scripture. Verse 17, notice he says, we are called to obey our leaders, to recognize that our leaders are given God-given authority and we are to submit to them. Notice verse 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Every time I read that, I want to just go, oh, God, help me. It's a sober thing for anyone who's called to serve a local church in leadership, to watch over your souls. And James says in James 3, any teacher or spiritual leader is held to higher judgment before God on judgment day. That's a very sobering thing for a true shepherd. The notice says, those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. The word submission, I know, is filled with all kinds of baggage. I know that. Abuse, domination. That's not what this text is teaching. That's not what the Bible teaches. Submission in the Scriptures is something we do out of voluntary love. There's a proper voluntary posture toward others, not blinded, that leads to human flourishing in our spiritual formation. And what I find is that many of us, including me, I'm the same way. Many of us have a hard time submitting to our leader's authority, to our governmental authority, to our spiritual authority, to the authority at work. And if we really peel it back, why we have such a hard time is because we are unwilling to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ as completely Lord of our lives. And he owns every square inch of this universe as his. The ultimate issue of submission 
is not horizontal, and that's hard for all of us, whether it's in a marriage or if you're a kid with your family, whatever the context, that's not easy. I know that. Not easy for me. But our horizontal submission is built on our vertical submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and obedience to His holy word. The gospel is incredibly good news. It is all the work of Christ. It is His grace. It's nothing we can do to earn it. The gospel is incredibly good news, but we must not miss that here at the end of Hebrews, the writer says it is demanding news, that it calls us to a wholehearted response of obedience and submission to God and His church and His people. Leaders must be good followers too, and that includes me. One of the finest books ever written in the Christian church. In fact, it's been translated, I think, second to Paul Bunyan's, or John, yeah, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It is the imitation. Literally, it's called Imitation First, right, from this text. Imitation. It's the Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. 14th century. And this is what Thomas Akempis says. This is the danger of presentism, of being so wrapped up into our current moment, we forget the great history and conversation of the past. Thomas Akempis said this, he said, no man, you can say no man or woman, in his day it was just man, no man rules safely unless he is willing to be ruled. No man commands safely unless he has learned well how to obey. Verse 17 encourages us to follow our leaders well and that they will be accountable for God, to God. So let me just ask a couple questions. What gives spiritual leaders joy? Notice the text, joy and groaning contrast there. Now, there's much I could say, but to encourage spiritual leaders is to put wind in their sails and not knock the wind out of their gut. Spiritual leaders need your encouragement. They groan when followers are not generous with grace both toward them and others. Spiritual leaders groan when we are nitpickers or we are know-it-alls. When we focus on dislocations, irritations that come with healthy change, or when we have unrealistic, realistic, unrealistic expectations of them, or we demand that they follow or the church follow our own particular preferences and passions. Spiritual leaders groan when followers who have much, often much less information than they often do about some issue or person or initiative in the church want to come and set the leader straight on how to do something better. Now, I want you to hear me. Good leadership, humble leadership, integral leadership solicits and welcomes helpful criticism and input. But helpful input is one thing. Nitpicking and know-it-alls are something else entirely. So what the writer is telling us is to follow well. He says, stay, te- stay teachable, be discerning, live generously, and then notice how he finishes it like a literary crescendo in verse 18. We are to pray faithfully. Notice verse 18. We read these words in the strongest imperative. Pray for us. That's what the text is saying. Pray for us. And it says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Friends, being a pastor or elder or spiritual leader is not something we can do on our own. The job is too massive. The task is too great. And we are just simply too small. Our wisdom is limited. Our strength is not enough. And without your regular prayer, spiritual leaders are perilously vulnerable and woefully inept. 
This is what the psalmist looks again across time in Psalm 127.1. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, and we are the house of God, the church, Paul says, unless he builds the house, we labor in vain who build it. The local church is a supernatural enterprise. It requires supernatural power, and it faces the most hateful, vehement enemy who is supernatural. If we don't pray faithfully, friends, our, for our gospel-centered, disciple-making mission, we will simply be a mirage of busy futility. And let me just say this. I don't know how else to say it. The greatest tragedy I fear most for Christ's community is not that somehow we would decline in the future or we would cease to exist, but they would be, we would cease to matter. Satan doesn't give a hoot whether we exist, or even how big we are. He cares a great deal whether we matter, whether we are tethered to truth, whether we are, we are being faithful to the gospel and to our gospel mission in the world. That's what he opposes. So have you embraced the gospel? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you a prayerful follower of Jesus? And are you praying for our church leadership? There's no way we can do it without you. It's easy for all of us to criticize the church in all its expressions in the world. And it's easy to criticize our own. But I want to suggest that the church would be more effective if we spent less time criticizing her and more time praying for her. This past week... I had a delightful coffee time with a longtime member of Christ's community, a wonderful leader in the academic world. We hadn't caught up in each other's lives for way too long, and that's one of the challenges in my life right now. I just would love to spend more time with you. There's not enough of me. I love when I get to spend time with you. Have coffee, catch up your life. We sat at Panera's. We hadn't talked for years, um, and not because we didn't want to. And when I sat down in the booth at Panera, he said to me right away, he said, Tom, I want you to know I pray for your soul. I pray for your spiritual disciplines. I pray for your family, your demanding schedule, the challenge and the load you carry. And I found, like I'm feeling now, tears and mist in my eyes. His prayerful heart put wind in my sails. So how do you pray for your spiritual leaders? I'm going to give you five things to write down. The slide will be up here, and then I'm going to close. Five things. Five things are important. First, that we would follow Jesus well. That we'd be yoked to Jesus. Secondly, we would be filled with supernatural wisdom and power. Third, our affections of our hearts would be properly ordered that we would love what Jesus loves. Fourth, that our lives and families, our lives and our families would be protected from evil in the evil one's ways. Last, we would have both, and this is what's important too, that we would have the brokenness and compassion of Jesus for people. We'd also have courage to be prophetic in our time. Faithful fellowship, Hebrews says, requires we all stay teachable, 
What do you mean? That we are all discerning, that we live generously, and we pray faithfully. Because followers of Jesus follow well. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for this beautiful and precious congregation. Thank you for the wonderful congregation of Christ community. And I'm so grateful for each one here across our campuses. And I feel so privileged to serve them. Thanks for their teachability, their discernment, their generosity, and their prayerfulness. Help us all to excel still more. Be our provider and protector. Keep each one here from evil. Fill them with joy. May they follow you and their leaders well. And may, as the Apostle Paul prayed, may they walk each day in a manner worthy of the Lord. May they please him in every respect. And may they bear fruit in every good work throughout this week. I pray in Jesus' name.